I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 12 through to the end of the chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. The word of the Lord says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over me, or sorry, all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had a great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. The pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of wisdom have long been a fascination of mankind trying to understand and possess a true knowledge about the way our world functions has occupied the minds of some of the sharpest people who've ever walked the earth. Uh, Aristotle considered the life of philosophical contemplation to be the highest and the most virtuous calling that one could enter. Now many people today who would not consider themselves uh, philosophers uh, nevertheless put much great hope in education, in knowledge. And it hardly needs to be said that knowledge, understanding, and wisdom are important matters. Uh, this in many ways is uh, self-evident, and as Christians we should quite easily affirm these things. However, there is a tendency to make the pursuit of knowledge and understanding bear too much weight to bear a load that it's just not meant to carry. There's a tendency to try to find in this pursuit ultimate satisfaction and meaning to life and solutions to all of man's problems. Even as Christians, we are sometimes tempted to do this or to think this way, even inadvertently perhaps. We think, if I just knew more about the Lord, about His world, about His secret designs and plans, what he was up to, if I just knew this information a little more, then everything would fall into place and I could then at that point uh, find some rest for my soul. But as we continue in Ecclesiastes, the Word of God reminds us of some of the limitations of wisdom and understanding. As we live in this world that is marked by these endlessly repeating cycles of futility in which generations come and generations go without having really accomplished much in the end, in the grand scheme of things, without having anything left over at the end, profiting little. Yes, even 
the noble pursuit of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom are part of this vanity. They will not ultimately satisfy. Now this text we're looking at today is not a complete disparaging of knowledge and, and wisdom. In fact, you recall, the, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. It's trying to distill wisdom to us. And part of that wisdom is understanding some of the limitations that wisdom provides, some of the limitations that understanding has. So we have covered uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 1 over the previous couple of sermons in Ecclesiastes in which Solomon introduces this book with this consideration of the futility and fleeting nature of life. In light of the big picture, if you recall, verses 3 through 11, we just don't seem to accomplish very much. And generations just come and go, and this just continues on and on. And now as we get into verse 12, after Solomon has kind of done an overview of what this is all about, this book, in verse 12, the quest begins in earnest. As Solomon begins to examine some specific topics and specific issues of life under the sun. And he begins here with this issue of wisdom and knowledge and understanding, perhaps because of man's tendency to think that the pursuit of knowledge fulfills life and gives a person a permanent significance. This claim that wisdom is ultimate, and this is what gives life its significance, may be the very first objection Solomon would expect to encounter after he explains and pronounces this reality in verse 2 of chapter 1 that everything is vanity. So he begins pointing to some of the errors in this thinking, into exalting wisdom and knowledge and understanding to too high of a place. So as we begin, we're going to look at first the limits of understanding, the limits of understanding in verses 12 to 15. So if you look at verse 12 again with me, begins, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel. As I explained a few weeks ago, I understand this to be uh, King Solomon writing, and that he says here, I have been king, uh, does not mean he is no longer king, but I would suggest this means that he has been king for some time now, and so that he's reflecting and, and writing towards the end of his days. I think this is uh, evidence towards that. Um, take on authorship that Solomon's writing towards the end of his days. And so the preacher Solomon has a message to preach, and this has been confirmed by the bitter experience of his life as he is looking back upon it. He has lived and he has felt the vanities that he will discuss and talk about in this book. And so verse 13, he describes this quest with the words, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So this is an earnest seeking. He's applying his heart to search, to seek. By using the wisdom that he has, he's seeking to discern all that is done under heaven. Now what does that mean? What is he looking for here? What is he trying to accomplish? Well, 
I would suggest to you that what he's attempting to do here is to find the meaning and the significance of all that is done under heaven. He's trying to understand life. It's an effort to put together the big picture of life. Understand all of its parts and the whole. Uh, how things occur, why things occur as they do. We see him describe this very effort in a number of places throughout Ecclesiastes, I, I think maybe a little more explicitly even. So, for example, in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So there's a big picture understanding that is out of reach for Solomon, he's saying there. Then in, in chapter 7, he, he does this again. He mentions in verse 14 that man may not find out anything that will be after him. But then uh, further down in, in, in verse 27 of chapter 7, he says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. This is what Solomon is trying to discern and figure out, is the scheme of things. To examine everything under heaven and to understand, to have answers to it all. And presumably then, to be able to contribute meaningfully, to fix problems, and so on. Which we'll see in just a moment. Uh, yet the second half of verse 13 begins to give the conclusions to this search. He says, beginning of verse 13, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The pursuit of understanding it all is an unhappy one, he says. Now the word unhappy is really not a strong enough translation. Uh, it is the word for evil or bad. And so the NASB refers to this as a grievous task, which I think is a better translation. It's a grievous task God has given to the children of man to be busy with, trying to figure this all out and put it all together. Moreover, he adds, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. As Solomon surveyed everything, and just remember, again, who Solomon is. He's the king in a very in a peaceful and, and prosperous time. Very, very wealthy man. As we'll see, he, he was, God granted him this wisdom and understanding beyond anyone else. So he had the, the time and the resources and the brain to be able to search all these things out. He had time to contemplate these matters. And his conclusion is that it's all vanity. So here's this word again, vanity. And if you remember, its essence, at its essence, it means vapor or a mere breath, a wind. And it has various connotations depending on the context. But what he seems to be getting at here is that all of this, as he's trying to figure it all out, put it all together, it's incomprehensible. And this pursuit is therefore futile. He's trying to understand it all, find the meaning in it all, the significance in everything, but he can't. 
Now, there's a question here about whether Solomon is calling the pursuit of understanding vain or the acts that he surveys under the sun as vain. And I would suggest that it's really both in the end. That as Solomon seeks to grasp the big picture of all that goes on by examining all the, the things that happen, the individual things that happen, he finds that these individual events are themselves incomprehensible and therefore trying to put this all together in some meaningful way is a grievous pursuit. It's like attempting to build a puzzle with random puzzle pieces from different puzzles. Each piece on its own is an enigma. How then are we to build any meaningful puzzle out of this? And so he calls this striving after wind. Pursuing this big picture is like trying to catch wind. This word for striving after wind is also uh, one that is debated, the precise meaning of it. It's translated here as striving. It could also be feasting on or, or eating wind. Others argue that the, the root word here is the word for shepherding. It's trying to shepherd the wind. Regardless, whether one's trying to catch it, eat it, or shepherd it, uh, it's futile. It's not going to happen. You're going to come up empty. That's what he's getting at. You're not going to be able to do it. Even if you could capture wind, you'd ha you have nothing. And in verse 15, he explains some of his reasoning for this conclusion. And he does so in a proverb in verse 15. He says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So here it would seem that part of his desire in trying to understand the world, why things happen as they do, and so on, was the hope of being able to then provide solutions and answers to fix things, improve things. Maybe this is the quest that would give meaning to life and break up the meaningless cycles that we looked at in verses 3 to 11. And yet the first part of the proverb here tells us that there are things that are crooked, bent, that cannot be straightened. That is, not everything can be fixed. Certain things happen, certain events occur, problems exist that we simply cannot fix. We cannot change. The pursuit of understanding will not result in a utopian society. In chapter 7, verse 13, Using very similar language, Solomon says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So he's not just talking about there are some evil things and there's not much you can do about it, you know, what's crooked. Crooked is not just a, a moral category. In chapter 7, he's reflecting the same concept, but he's saying that God has made certain things crooked. There's a recognition that there are things outside of our domain that belong to God and to His providence that's not our area. The second line of the proverb reminds us that we're lacking a lot of information. We cannot count what we do not have. 
If I were to ask you to give you some money and ask you to count it and tell me how much I'm missing, you would need to know how much are you supposed to have. And if I can't give you that answer, you'd look at me like I'm nuts. Like you can't, you can't give me what I'm seeking. You don't, you don't know what, how much is, you can't possibly know how much is missing. After analyzing everything done under the sun, there's still so much missing information that you and I, Solomon, cannot examine. We don't even know what we're missing. What puzzle pieces are out there that we don't know? There, there is a humility in this conclusion that many do not possess today in our arrogance. And so the effort to determine the scheme of things will necessarily be frustrated. Now, if you come at this pursuit of understanding from a purely secularist perspective, obviously the scriptures are going to teach you that your endeavor is going to fall flat. But even as we try to understand all things that God is doing in the world, if we view this as a business from God, that's how Solomon describes it here, what he's saying in his conclusion still hold true putting together the big picture, interpreting and explaining all events, trying to grasp the why of all that occurs, simply cannot be done. We cannot do it. Even with God's revelation to us in Scripture, it does not give us exhaustive knowledge of all that occurs. Biblical wisdom doesn't mean that we will understand everything that happens. It doesn't mean that we will be able to solve all problems. Some things just are. We can't undo it. We sometimes can't even really explain it. We can't change it. Biblical wisdom reminds us that sovereignty and full knowledge are God's. His providence is beyond us. And so as I've said before, part of what Ecclesiastes does is re-enthrones God, so to speak, reminding us of our finiteness, implying God's infiniteness. If He has bent something, we cannot straighten it. His ways are not our ways. Now if you consider for just a moment the issue of suffering, the Bible does give us very real and helpful and meaningful truth to understand suffering in our world. The, the scriptures are a tremendous help in this. We know tragedy strikes because of sin. We, we can point people to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the forgiveness of sins, to eternal life, to place hope in, in Christ. There's much comfort to be had from the scriptures, but if we try to drill down into why did a specific calamity happen to a specific person and not somebody else, we're not going to be able to determine that necessarily. We'll often be at a loss. And this, this very issue is something he will return to in Ecclesiastes. Uh, yesterday, it's a bit of a long story, but Eric and I were in Humboldt very briefly. And of course, it was just recently the anniversary, the third anniversary of the horrific and tragic bus crash. 
that occurred there. And we were just talking about that. And if, if you try to understand why that occurred, beyond we live in a fallen world and sin, and these, these are important, helpful categories, hear me. But if we try to understand why specifically those individuals, why this occurred, how it occurred, we, we, we can go mad trying to determine that. If you consider all of the little things that could have happened to completely avoid these two vehicles meeting at the perfect time at this really insignificant intersection in the middle of almost nowhere. A little delay here from either party. If you try to think about why that bus, why those people at that very time, all the things that led all of those individuals to be in those places at that time, why did this happen? If we try to get our head around those kinds of details, we simply will fall short. I think these are the kinds of issues that Solomon is talking about here. We just, we can't change it. We can't go back and fix that. We can't even entirely explain it. Why have we all survived our trips so far and them not? We have limits to our understanding. J.I. Packer in his book on knowing God talks about how we want the bird's eye view of life. We want to see how and why everything occurs. We want to, you know, it's like if we were driving in a car, we want to see the, the helicopter view of the city streets so we can see ahead there's a stalled car, there's a delay, that's why traffic's going to back up, we can take a detour. We want to see it all laid out in front of us and then be able to make our decisions. But that's not our vantage point as we go through life. That's not biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is more akin to good driving skills, to possessing the ability to navigate whatever comes without necessarily knowing why. We may not know why that car just pulled out, but we have the skills and ability to respond wisely and appropriately. So the scriptures are showing us here that our understanding is and will be limited no matter how smart we are, no matter how much knowledge we accumulate over time. We have limits of understanding. But secondly, we see the limits of wisdom. The limits of wisdom. So Solomon sought understanding by wisdom, verses 12 to 15, and it came up short. And now there's a reflection on wisdom itself. Verse 16, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had a great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Again, this is a good description of Solomon. 1 Kings 4, 29 tells us that God himself gave him wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind, like the sand on the seashore. That he was surpassing all of the peoples of the earth in these categories. He was a knowledgeable, smart man. And he continues in verse 17, And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. So having possessed much wisdom and knowledge beyond anyone else, Solomon contemplated the contrast between wisdom on the one hand and folly on the other. 
It says madness here as well. Madness is not speaking about insanity as you and I might uh, think of it. Rather, it refers to moral perversity. In Ecclesiastes, folly and madness are tied explicitly to evil in chapter 9, verse 3, and in chapter 10, verse 13. So it's not a literal uh, cognitive madness, but it's a moral madness. He's, he's contrasting wisdom here with its opposite, with the rejection of wisdom, with the embrace of folly, which is immoral, which is madness. And the idea seems to be here that there would be great joy and gain from contrasting the two. If I possess great wisdom, then I will find tremendous satisfaction in comparing myself to fools, to what I know, to what the fool knows. Later in chapter 2, verse 13, he will say that there's much gain in wisdom, more gain than in folly. And I think that probably seems so very obvious to every one of us. Obviously, wisdom is better than folly. But Solomon likes to take that which appears very obvious and plain to us, and then to throw a bit of a wrench into our spokes. And he does that here by saying that his consideration of wisdom and folly was also a striving after wind. And he explains why he draws this conclusion in another proverb in verse 16. Sorry, verse 18. He says, for, so he's explaining why this is striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The increase in wisdom and knowledge brings with it an increase in vexation and sorrow. This is not that different than the statement that we're all familiar with, that ignorance is bliss. Except it's stated the other way around, as if wisdom and knowledge are misery. I think this is a reality that many of you have been experiencing very intimately over the past year. Uh, if you have grown in your knowledge and understanding of things like our Charter of Rights and Freedom, Freedoms and how it is supposed to be employed and protected by law and you're watching it be trampled and you're watching neighbors just seemingly hand over these freedoms all over the place. If you have an understanding and knowledge of history and political history, then you have also experienced a great increase in vexation and in sorrow over the past year. I know this because many of you have expressed this to me. Now imagine, imagine for a moment, being the most wise and smartest person who's ever walked the planet. And then imagine having to live with the rest of us. Having to interact with us, normal people. 
not on your plane or your wavelength, not knowing the things that you know. Imagine what the Lord Jesus Christ experienced when he walked the earth in his humanity amongst fools. And consider again the patience with his disciples. His restraint with the Pharisees or with someone like Pilate. Knowing all the things that Jesus would know. Obviously, wisdom and knowledge are good things. Ecclesiastes will, will state as much, essentially. But Solomon is reminding us here that it also brings with it sorrow and frustration. If you want to find all your joy in increasing your knowledge, if you think that increased wisdom will make you feel great about life, will just solve your problems, Solomon would like you to see where that pursuit will lead. There will be an increase in vexation and sorrow. Perhaps as you get older, you might notice some of the increased difficulties and stresses of life. There's all kinds of reasons, I think, for that. But one of those reasons is probably the amount you know now. You may not feel incredibly wise, but the amount of wisdom you have gained as you get older, and as you see increasingly around you, increased sorrow. Things that you are just oblivious to or ignorant to when you were younger. This is the kind of thing that, that Solomon is talking about here. Well, there are many ways to apply all of this, and I trust and, and pray and hope that the Spirit is already helping you to do this. But I want to just say a couple of things in light of all of this as, we, as I bring this to a close. The first is that I would encourage you to embrace your finiteness. To seek wisdom and understanding, yes, but to know the limits of it. And to place your trust in the infinite and almighty God who knows the end from the beginning. To rest in his sovereignty and to know your place within this. That it is not your place to understand why everything is the way it is. To understand all mysteries. To be okay with that. To settle your soul with that. To know that the Lord in whom you trust, that's His territory. How we, how we agonize over the why question.
important to accept that we may not, there may not be answers to some of these questions. You may not be able to find it out. And if that's your hope of living a satisfied and fulfilled life, I would encourage you to abandon that pursuit. Secondly, I would encourage you to renew your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This world has indeed been subjected to futility. This has been done by God because of sin. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who will bring an end to this and establish the new heavens and new earth. When this cycle of futility will be done away with forever. He is the one who will bring creation to its ultimate appointed end. There is so much we do not know, but of this we can be certain. Of this, Scripture is very clear. And of course, sin is not just some cosmic problem that makes things frustrating, that in general creates difficulty in the earth. Sin is also a personal problem, an individual problem. As each man and woman has sinned before God and broken His laws and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Father has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take on humanity To die on the cross and to rise again from the dead to save sinners. Jesus has earned a righteousness in his life and he has satisfied God's wrath in his suffering. And he did this that all who trust in him might be forgiven their sin and transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom. And so if you've not, And you need to place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. The Bible is clear. You will stand before God one day. This life that is like a breath, a vapor that comes and goes, as Ecclesiastes is saying, one day it will be your turn and you will stand before God and you will be judged according to God's righteous standard. So God in His love has sent Jesus. He has died. He has risen from the dead. There is forgiveness of sins in His name. And the Bible's call to you is to turn from your sin, to repent of your sin, to confess it to God, to acknowledge that you deserve His justice and wrath as, as He is holy, as He is the creator of all things. You being a finite created being who is moreover sinful against the creator, your creator, the infinite one, the eternal one. Confess your sin to God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's provision for sinners. And for those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, I would again encourage you to renew your hope in Him. 
That one day He will, as Revelation says in chapter 21, He will make all things new. That He will come and He will consummate His kingdom. And all of this futility will be done away with. The curse will be gone forever. And you will forever dwell with the Lord and with His redeemed. And I would encourage you to rest in Him. To rest in what He has accomplished. To not think that if you could just know a whole bunch more, then life will settle and it'll be great. That once you have a certain understanding, everything will fall into place and you'll have this wonderful peace. Obviously it is good to study, to learn, to grow in your understanding of the Word of God. If you know and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, rest in this today. Even as you seek further understanding, rest in what Christ has done for you at the cross. There is much you don't know, but your God knows all, and your times are in His hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we can gather. It's the day you've given us. This too is in your hands. So we rejoice in it. Father, we, we thank you for, for your word that again deals so honestly with reality with life in a fallen world. Father, I pray that we would not be mistaken, that we would not be lulled into any false sense of security. I pray that it would be sufficient for us to be in Christ Jesus. That even as there's much we want to learn and so much of our desire to, to know more and to understand is good and, and is rooted in even what your word teaches. Help us not to idolize that pursuit or to think that we'll reach a certain level at which peace will magically be ours. I pray that we would be able, even now, wherever we are at, whatever our understanding, to be able to rest in what Christ has done. Father, I pray that as we go out from here and into our busy weeks and busy lives, that you would strengthen us and give us much grace. Father, that we might live by faith, that we might trust you all the more, that we might know your greatness, know the, the greatness of your majesty, that you would know the end from the beginning. That we would be content with the realization that you are God and we are not. And that in, because of your remarkable grace, we belong to you through faith in, in, in your Son. I pray that this would incite greater joy in our hearts. 
Father, we thank you so much for dealing mercifully with us this day and each day. In Jesus' name.